0: You are watching Cable Ten, Aurora, Illinois Community Access Channel. From the city of St. Louis, you are listening to the Don't Push Pause podcast with your hosts
1: Justin Johnson and Lindsey Reber. Party on, Lindsay.
0: Party on, Justin.
1: I'm super excited to talk about Wayne's World. And uh, it's been a fun few weeks revisiting this movie. I'd actually seen it maybe only a year prior to us getting ready for this episode. but
0: I thought you watched this like every month of your life.
1: Yeah, I should. I'd probably have a better life.
0: <laughs> I think I'm just going to start the first of every month watching Wayne's World. It really has uh, perked my spirits up.
1: Just the very the very first five minutes of this movie is hilarious.
0: It really does start out with a bang, and that was very intentional from director Penelope Spiras, too.
1: Well, there's a lot to get into with Wayne's World. We're going to take you through the process of the Wayne Campbell character and how it developed into an SNL skit and then how it became a, a two two-man show and then the success that was Wayne's World, the movie.
0: Of course, we'll go behind the scenes a little bit of the production, talk about the type of comedy, what people love about it so much, the director that I already mentioned, um, of course, the music, jeez, the reception, sequel. We'll
1: probably touch on those uh, numerous SNL movies, the hits and the misses.
0: Of course, we love talking about the cast, so we will be hitting on the main player's And uh, everybody, every supporting face in this movie, too.
1: Yeah, a lot of uh, great comedic efforts in this movie.
0: And for Picks of the Week, let's see. Justin, what did you go with this week?
1: This was a tough one because there were so many. I had so many ideas of different movies to connect to Wayne's World, but I actually decided to go with uh, SNL-connected cast members, and I chose uh, Airheads with... uh, Adam Sandler, Steve Buscemi, and Brendan Fraser, and it has that musical connection too. It's like about music in the same sort of sense that Wayne's World is.
0: Oh yeah, uh, I used to watch this movie a lot. I felt very close to the Adam Sandler character for some reason in this movie. I feel like that would be me in the movie.
1: Yeah, he kind of makes this movie. I think.
0: Yeah, that's kind of what I was going for. That like, yeah. if I were in the movie, it would. Yeah, I I would make it the best thing about it. That's what I was going for.
1: <laughs> what was your uh, pick of the week?
0: Mine uh, was a movie that a lot of people I feel scoff at when you bring up, but upon a revisit, man, I watched this thing three times and I loved every second of it. And that was the next Saturday Night Live movie to come out after Wayne's World, 1993's Coneheads.
1: You've got me real curious about this movie. I've actually never seen it, but I saw that it is on Netflix, so I might have to hit that up this week.
0: I'd say it's another feel-good type of positive movie.
1: Well, of course, always we'll round things out with our Murray moments. But before we get into our first clip from Wayne's World, Lindsay, can you give us a brief lowdown on what this movie is about? Fine. I'll get
0: it. Great. Do it. Cool. Fine.
1: Just do it. Say it.
0: Fine. I will then. Great. Cool. Are you ready? Yeah. Yeah, I'm ready.
1: I'm just sitting here waiting for you. I'm already rolling, so.
0: (laughs) And end scene. Plugged into the local music scene, two metalheads, Wayne and Garth, uh, have been plugging away producing an entertainment public access show called Wayne's World. But when a flashy TV producer sees their show, he immediately wants to commercialize it, make Wayne and Garth sell out, take over, and make a schmoozy play for Wayne's girlfriend, who's a total mega babe with rock star potential. That was great. I tried to bring it all in there. Cassandra's such a big part of the movie. You have to include her in the synopsis, you know.
1: You totally do. Well, let's go to our first clip from Wayne's World. We'll come back. We'll get into this uh fun-filled movie. Sometimes I wish I could boldly go where no man's gone before. But I'll probably stay in Aurora. What are you thinking about? Cassandra. She's a fox. In France, she would be called La Renard, and she would be hunted with only her cunning to protect her. She's a babe. She's a robo-babe. In Latin, she would be called Babia Majora. If she were a president, she'd be Abraham Lincoln.
0: Did you ever find Bugs Bunny attractive when he'd put on a dress and play a girl bunny? No. No. <laughs> No, Neither did I. I was was just asking.
1: So when we started researching uh, Wayne's World, I I thought um, that Wayne's World was pretty much just created solely as a sketch for SNL, and then based off the success of that, they decided to make it into a movie. I really had no idea that the character Wayne Campbell that Mike Myers created uh, had started much, much, much earlier than... Uh, Even before he was on SNL.
0: Yeah, like so much earlier. Try talking about 11, 12 years old when he was living in Canada. So he was a metalhead teenager in the Toronto suburbs and grew up in a showbiz kind of family and in a family where they stayed up, you know, late to watch SNL and SCTV, and his parents encouraged him to watch. Peter Sellers movies like they they appreciated comedy in his household so yeah the character of Wayne Campbell did come from little Mike Myers he was in some television commercials around like ever since he was 12 years old round about there and just right after high school he was accepted to the touring company of Second City Toronto so that's just kind of crazy Shortly after that, he moved to the UK, ended up being a founding member of the Comedy Store Players, which was another improv group out of London. And then in 86, he came back to Canada was doing the main stage of Second City, Toronto, and Wayne became a character on the CBC Canadian Broadcasting Company TV uh, show called It's Only Rock and Roll, and it was called the Wayne's Power Minute. So in the mid-80s, another thing that Wayne was on was a city TV out of Canada called City Limits. He also appeared on Much Music, and i I knew much music because I was an MTV kid, and that's the Canadian MTV. So Wayne was actually out there. Wayne was in existence, but not, you know, on a mega stardom scale like he ended up being on Saturday Night Live. So around about 1988, Mike had just done the 15th anniversary show for Second City Toronto, and comedians Dave Foley, Martin Short, and Pam Thomas all called up Lauren Michaels and said, Hey, man, you got to look at this Mike Myers kid. I think it's time to draft up another Second City person to join the cast of SNL. And that's what Lauren did. He called Mike, offered him a job to join the eighty-eight, eighty-nine cast. It was the 13th season of Saturday Night Live. And so Mike joined midseason. And just like that... His life kind of changed, but he did join a cast that was already, you know, they already had their groove going. So Mike was kind of the, you know, newbie. And even though he wasn't green to the showbiz industry, it certainly was, you know, a jarring thing to be kind of thrown into there's a lot of things i i don't know about behind the scenes of snl but they certainly encourage you the more characters and everything that you have creatively like they want all of that so you got to bring it out and the more ideas that you have characters that you have i mean half of them are going to get pitched out the window probably more than half are going to get pitched out the window but if you get a good one and you stick with it, it it could turn into something massive and that is kind of what happened with wayne campbell so Mike's living in New York and discovers uh, the public access show called The Robin Bird Show. And probably only if you've spent some time in New York or have lived there, do you know what The Robin Bird Show is? Uh, that is a whole, that's a whole other podcast. But Is was an amazing cable access show that I had the privilege of watching numerous times. Anyway, he got inspired by uh, watching that and thinking about what if Wayne had a cable access show, so he pitches the idea to Lauren. Lauren's on board with it, but says, "Okay, so this idea is too, you know, niche-driven, and you need to have a sidekick. So I get that, like, you're metalhead, and you know, you have this cable access show, but we need a, f- we need a foil. We need somebody to help you out in this skit." And this is where Dana Carvey comes in. Now, Dana had joined the cast back in 86. So he was a seasoned guy. People knew who he was. He was easily a bigger star than Mike Myers. But Mike indeed asked him to basically be a sidekick. And the only guidance he really gave him was saying, okay, so Garth worships Wayne. That's about it. And in some ways, that seems pretty freeing. I'm sure that there's a lot more behind this that would be impossible for us to know unless we were actually in the writer's room to know how all of this got sorted out. But Dana certainly had some creative freedom with the character of Garth. Like, Garth was based upon his brother, like the way he talks, this nerdy kind of fix it guy. But a lot of what made up Garth strictly, totally came from Dana. And one thing that Lauren Michaels always encouraged them to do was to kind of have this, not necessarily push and pull, but kind of competing for airtime. And that creates comedy. That kind of chaos helps create the comedy that happens um, on every episode of Wayne's World that was in SNL and um, certainly in the movie, definitely carried over into the movie. Now, without going totally into just talking about Wayne's World sketches. There were 19 episodes, not counting ones in much, much later seasons that ran from 89 to 94. And when you put it in in the idea of thinking that's really only like four and a half seasons, it's still hell of a lot of episodes for a recurring character, especially on SNL, when sometimes those recurring characters don't last that long. And when it came to the movie, it really only took Mike Myers going to Lauren Michaels and saying, So I think we should do a Wayne's World movie. And Lauren Michaels just said yes.
1: And once it was decided that uh, the Wayne's World movie was a go, there was the next task of deciding who would direct such a movie. They wanted somebody who was familiar with the genre music that Wayne and Garth listened to, like a hip director. And Lauren Michaels had a longtime friend and associate in Penelope Spheres, and she was given the shot at directing Wayne's World. Penelope Spheres had directed a three-part documentary entitled The Decline of Western Civilization, Parts 1, 2, and 3. The films covered different moments in time in the Los Angeles youth and music scene. The first uh, taking place in the early 80s, it covered the punk scene. The second decline film took place in the mid and late 80s, and it covered the burgeoning heavy metal scene in Los Angeles. The last uh, decline film was much more serious. It covered uh, homelessness of youth and gutter punk kids living in Los Angeles in the late 90s. But uh, in between the first two decline of Western Civilizations, she did do uh, several independent and somewhat studio finance features with Suburbia, which is a very grim uh, tale of... A disenfranchised punk youth, followed by The Boys Next Door, which was another very grim tale of two young and handsome serial killers on the run. And she followed that up with a much more humorous tone, though bleak at times, and silly uh, dudes. In my mind, it was, kind of, you know, she was a bold choice because she had done some very, very grim and, and bleak movies to, you know, tackle something so silly and goofy like Wayne's World. But she was actually like a really fantastic choice and she was definitely a director who gave a lot of input and some some of the humor that is in Wayne's world came from ideas, you know, that she incorporated and helped uh, Mike Myers with.
0: Certainly one aspect that she brought to it was a sense of realness and legitimacy. Not that Mike Myers and Dana Carvey didn't know, like, the metal scene, but she really knew it. She lived it. She was it. So bringing her to this movie in some ways grounded the film and made it to where it's still going to be silly and goofy, but it wasn't going to lose any audience. It was still going to encompass the people that love this particular style of music or just music in general. It's a non-alienating type of feel. And I think you can watch this as a person who appreciates that genre of music or just like music in general, but you also don't have to be someone that was, was or is absorbed by the music scene. And I think she, she definitely added that sensibility to it.
1: Yeah. And there's certainly some of her touches in Wayne's world, like the use of somewhat fantasy sequences, but not, just outright fantasy, you know, like the foxy lady sequence uh, where Dana <laughs> yeah. Carvey's like sort of miming the words. And then as well as some of the dark sort of undertones, like the Ed O'Neill character, these moments that they they are funny, but there's like a very, very dark tone to it.
0: Um, <laughs> there is, yeah.
1: And, you know, she handles that stuff really, really well. And I, and I think, yeah, I, I agree with you 100%, like keeping Wayne's World grounded because, it definitely is a movie that could fly off the rails. You know, I think of a lot of 80s movies where I go back and watch, and I think, like, gosh, there's like half of this movie, 50% of this movie is like all fantasy sequences, you know, and they can be cute at times, but, at, you know, it kind of gets old, especially on a rewatch. You're like, okay, I got to get through this like fourth dream fantasy sequence <laughs> uh, that this character's having, you know, and it's like, and then you, you know, you add a couple montages to that, and you only have about 20% of story and character. Um, So I think it was like a wise choice to find somebody who really wasn't an all out comedy director, someone who had done more gritty, realistic stuff, but also someone who could help somebody like Mike Myers say, hey, that's funny or hey, this is working because he had really only done uh, short comedy sketch stuff. He hadn't really been in the world of feature films early on in his life. You know, he had done, like you said, a few commercials and stuff like that. But he hadn't been, you know, did a 30 day shoot, 40 day shoot being on the movie set. So I think it was a really wise choice to have somebody that was relatable, who was grounded and who could help coax him through the stages of of, of working on on that kind of schedule and, and in that kind of realm.
0: It wasn't necessarily the easiest thing for Penelope Spheres to to step in to an already existing, well known sketch like Wayne's World, and she was a fan of, of Saturday Night Live, of course, but also of of the Wayne's World sketches. But when you step in to something that is written by, you know, not only Mike Myers, but you also have Bonnie and Terry Turner, two other writers who put out this script. You have kind of a lot of cooks in the kitchen, and not only writers, but also You know, Dana Carvey's got an opinion. He's been doing this character for, at this point, what would it be, you know, three years. And to be the director directing them, and there's a lot of um, ideas that needed to be sorted out. So one of the ways she chose to deal with having so many cooks in the kitchen was to actually shoot some scenes four different ways, it, her way, Mike's way, Dana's way, the writer's way, or, you know, two or three of those incarnations. And then when she would get in the editing room, or when it came for editing time, she had options to choose from. In some ways that can seem maddening, I I think, but it also depends on how your brain works. And if Lauren Michaels wanted her to do this film because he knew that she could be quick, decisive, and knew exactly what she wanted. And just from seeing interviews with the woman, she's very confident and not in an arrogant way. Like she's not just going to go ahead with something because it's her way or the highway. She's going to go with what she feels is best for the situation. And so I feel that if she wanted to go in doing that and allowed that to happen, that that was the best way to keep everybody happy at the time, and then also knowing at the end of the day, she's the one that's going to have final say pretty much over everything.
1: Yeah, I think she had a great uh, way of thinking when she uh, Dana Carvey would keep pitching her ideas, and she'd say, "If you can do it funnier in under ten seconds, we can put it in the movie." You know, and that was like her way of, "I'll let you do what you want, but we we can't like dick around with this all day long. You, know, you just <laughs> got to like do it funny and do it quickly, and we'll probably put it in the movie if it works." And probably the biggest evidence of this is. Uh, from our first clip, where uh, Mike and Dana are sitting on top of the car, and when you hear Mike Myers' laughter after Dana Carvey asks him the question about Bugs Bunny, they're both so slap happy, and Mike Myers' reaction is just totally natural. And that's, you know, Penelope's Fierce said hey let's you know let's keep that in the movie that was that was great she kind of just let that play out even though they were tired and it wasn't really something that was meant to be in the movie it's great because the way it's framed it frames them as like these two you really see them as like two best buds I like that uh they go back to that same setup whenever Garth is really upset with Wayne and they kind of have it out yeah um I do like that it that that little moment where they're on a car kind of like bookends their friendship a little bit
0: that is one thing that becomes very obvious on a rewatch of wayne's world is sure there's a lot of humor and funny bits in this but the friendship between wayne and garth i mean is really endearing and sure we have some goofiness and some cartoony type moments not literal cartoons, but just, you know, comical moments, it comes down to a story about friendship and whether that is articulated through the idea of breaking from the storyline to do a Laverne and Shirley, you know, montage of Wayne and Garth doing the opening credits of, of laverne and shirley or it's done in another way just showing their bonding or showing them getting in a fight and making up and this movie really is about friendship and i don't think that i ever realized the heart that's really behind the the whole thing the whole story when i was watching this you know when i was 15
1: i also never realized how much i love garth Um, you know, I know this is (laughs) like Wayne's movie and it's Wayne's world and it's his TV show, but I just can't picture this movie existing without Garth and Garth to me, he gets, he gets the best scenes and the best
0: laughs. You know, what's funny, Justin, one thing I learned about this was not that there is competition necessarily, but Mike was one of the primary writers in this and Dana noticed he was getting written out of some scenes that he was in previously or his ideas weren't being included and he actually kind of like tapped out. In his mind, he tapped out officially and was like, I'm done with this movie and it was three weeks before they were due to shoot and no one believed him that he was actually tapping out of the movie. In Dana's mind, he really was. But after coming back and talking about it, and being allowed to do some ad-libbing scenes and just kind of like forcing his way into a lot of these scenes. Some of those scenes that we see are completely ad-libbed by Dana Carvey and weren't in the script. And that's not to say all of them weren't, but Dana really seemed like he had to make sure Garth had a voice in this. And I think Penelope Spheris really pushed for that too. From what I can tell, whenever she talks about Garth, like she really loves that character. And I i mean, I do too. He's so sweet. Um, and he always messes up what he's, he always says the wrong thing in a situation. And I don't know, I identify with Garth in a lot of ways.
1: I respect Dana Carvey for sticking up for his right to have some creative like input in the movie um, because some of his, like I said, some of his scenes, I love when it pulls away from Dana Carvey. Like the style of the movie is very strange because they're breaking the fourth wall and we're talking to the audience. But I love that we even go further than that because we're watching Wayne deal with some situation. Like when he mainly, it's usually when he's talking to Benjamin, the the Rob Lowe character that's wanting to produce Wayne's world and and pay them for it. Garth is untrusting of people. You know, he trusts Wayne, and that's about it. And, you know, he has his own alone time where he's like going through the apartment and the camera leaves Wayne and we're just now following Garth and he's talking to us. And it's, to me, it's, it gives the, the movie a little bit of like a second layer, you know, this whole other idea of like a character who's supposed to be kind of goofy and naive, but at the same time, he's also like really, really smart. Um, And I think the movie, you know, they do a good balance of that, of, of showing that, you know he can be socially awkward and and say the wrong thing but then later you know he can do yeah. all these different like technical audiovisual uh ge- <laughs> you know gymnastics yeah. to to help you know save the day
0: yeah he's actually a genius in a lot of ways the stepping out of the straightforward narrative but still following the story is is one of my favorite aspects uh, of Wayne's World and i know that breaking the fourth wall You and I, Justin, sometimes we can be on board with that, and then when we're not, we'll be like, that ruined the entire movie. I can't even handle that it was even included in it, but not in Wayne's world. And the same thing could be said for anything um, that they do as far as parody goes. The whole absurd scene of the product placement, it's friggin' hilarious. And it is so clearly, I mean, doing a shtick, and it's not necessarily set up like a like a sketch or something or something that's just inserted, but it is breaking that fourth wall when it's directly addressing the audience in this way to kind of satirize how we do commercialize and have all of these pop culture references. Um, I, I love that aspect of Wayne's World. I think it's it's something that, if done incorrectly, could... Ruin something, but not in this case. It's very intelligently and sarcastically done. I think that's why it works.
1: When they do the parodies in these sort of satirical moments where they don't do it to death, you know, they don't do it like, hey, we're going to do this until it's funny because we've done it so many times. It's like they're sprinkled throughout the movie so you know this is a style, this is the universe in which we're living in here, you know, expect it, you know, we could do a Laverne and Shirley parody the Terminator two parody, but they're not going to do like an entire scene. It's like quick little moments and then a clever way to jump out of it. Like they're doing the whole Laverne and Shirley intro. And then they're like, what are we doing? We've got passes. We've got backstage (laughs) passes to Alice Cooper, you know? And then they like, they like jump out of the, the parody thing. And I, to me, that's like a clever way to do it. Not just do a parody because we can do a, do a parody, you know? And, um, you know, and it's appropriate if you're doing a movie like Scary Movie or something like that. But for this type of movie, I think that they do it just enough to where it plays well. But uh, again, like I said, a, a clever way to segue out of those. So that it's just not this like hard cut or that, you know, you're just like, okay, this movie's just so random. You know, I mean, it, it does have a, a beginning, middle, and end, and, and things are somewhat cohesive.
0: And also, as far as the satirical kind of aspect of this movie, I mean, the whole idea of this uh, male camaraderie and kind of lightweight metalheads—it's done with such love. <laughs> the 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 joke, the uh, joke that comes up a couple times, the friend that keeps saying, "I love you, man." No, like, I love you, man and then by the end that joke has a, finally has a payoff where it again is directly addressing the camera saying I love you too man and i've come to understand that two men can have platonic love yeah. you know like these you you spend the entire movie we have these like little things that we don't necessarily they're funny right but there is an eventual payoff for pretty much everything except that hand that 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 the uh, robotic hand that Garth for some reason hits with a hammer. And we don't really know why. There is a story behind that. I can save that for later. But there really aren't too many moments that um, come up that don't have a payoff.
1: Yeah, and even the uh, ending. I, w- I I was trying to remember how I felt about the ending, and on the rewatch, because it, it is a bizarre thing to have like these alternate endings. Um, I think the only movie I can think of that has done this other than Clue, the movie, where they have like three different endings played one on top of the other. I really like that. You know, I mean, it's it's a funny way to end it. And it's they do it just enough. They don't drag it out for very long. It's pretty satisfying.
0: The first thing I think of is Clue, too. And with Clue, while they're all very entertaining, it does, they go on for, for a second. For a second, yes. yeah. Yeah, they go on for quite a while. And it almost feels like the end of Wayne's World, like they happen too quickly. But that's also the comedic speed, pretty much, of of the whole movie. I don't really feel like it drags too much. If anything, it is this nice balance between having a narrative of a story that we care about. We actually care what happens to Wayne and Garth and to Wayne's World, the show, and Cassandra Um, You know, we care about everything that's happening in this. But at the same time, there's also this other constant current of chaos underneath everything that everything could just change at a moment's notice. And yeah, like some of the I mean, the things that we've been bringing up obviously show that these little chaotic elements that can get inserted into it, but at the same time, we still have um, a very straightforward story that's, that's happening the whole time.
1: The script is smart in a lot of ways in that, you know, it is a very simple story, but there, the story that is there isn't just there to facilitate the jokes, you know it's they a they spend point. they spend a little bit of time like just the whole idea of them moving their cable access television show from Wayne's actual basement to this studio where things are set up and all the problems that come with that with you know bringing his small crew into working in a professional studio with other professional crew guys and And them having to work together and and then the creative differences that come with that. They're playing all those problems out like how they would in reality in a non-comedy movie. It gives you something to cling to. It's like, okay, we want this to be based in reality in a script. And let's work good jokes into that reality. I always find that to be the sign of a smart comedic script where even if the story's simple, it's not just a throwaway story and everything that happens is just like, You're bored until like the jokes land.
0: It doesn't really happen in Wayne's world. And in some ways it feels like that could almost be like a departure from what we think would normally happen in a comedy like this. But if there's one thing that Lauren Michaels is kind of known for in comedy is doing what you don't expect or the thing that when you you think it's going to go here, but it's going to take you over here. And I think having a comedy like this with all of these—I don't even just want to say jokes—but with all these like setups happening, and a story that is completely propelling through it, it is kind of part of that entire idea of departing from um, what you expect. A normal, you know, teen comedy Yeah. Uh, to do. A safe teen comedy, too. Wouldn't you say that? I mean, this is PG-13, but, man, it is a fairly clean movie.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it could pass as a PG, especially for today's yeah. standards. But I also think, too, uh, you know, just finally, you know, we should move on to the, to the next clip. Yeah. But finally, watching this movie in a 2020 lens, it plays really well. You know, there's nothing really here that... Is kind of obscene or offensive by today's standards, and it's still it's it's funny without you know going for low blows. And yeah, like you said, it's a very clean comedy. I feel like you could watch this with the whole family and, and enjoy it. But I think that there's plenty here for for kids and adults alike.
0: Yeah, surprisingly, the only thing that comes up that could be remotely offensive, Wayne actually calls himself out in a in a silent awkward way. Um, and it's when he Meets Cassandra for the first time After her first show I'm not going to bring it up You just, just watch the movie Let's go to the next clip
1: Alright, we'll be right back
0: Tell me When that first show is over
1: Will you still love me when I'm an incredibly humongoid Giant star? Yeah Will you still love me when I'm in my hanging out with Ravi Shankar phase? Yeah Will you still love me when I'm in my carbohydrate sequin jumpsuit, young girls in white cotton panties, waking up in a pool of your own vomit, bloated, purple, dead on a toilet face? Yeah.
0: Okay. Party. Bonus. Yeah. Oh, hi, Anthony. Who's Anthony? Who's Anthony? My drummer. Okay.
1: Uh, as always, uh, our favorite things to talk about in this podcast is the cast and Wayne's World is no uh, different. Such a great ensemble cast uh, and, and a great comedic cast to boot.
0: We already kind of touched on Mike Myers and Dana Carvey. But, man, you know who who owes so much to this movie are the two other like main, main stars, that being Rob Lowe and Tia Carrere, who play uh, Benjamin Oliver, the jerk, TV producer, and Cassandra, the mega babe who Wayne falls in love with.
1: I get why Wayne is so uh, obsessed with her. You know, she's just like the perfect equal parts badass talent. You know, she's in a band, super smart and also doesn't seem to be like full of herself either. It's like very grounded.
0: And she certainly had that confidence kind of walking into this part. As she said in one interview, what other Asian American actress are they going to find all these qualities in? Like, that's me. And I don't I mean, good luck finding somebody else, but it's going to be me because I fit this role. And I don't think that it's just Wayne, you know, showing how in love with her immediately that he is like she is really just a, a kick ass woman and pulls it off so well. Even I fell. I fell for Cassandra watching this all over again.
1: Not that not that she hasn't had a great career, but you know you would be expecting her to show up in like so many big movies, and and she did for like one or two years. You know she was in True Lies, but then yeah, she's
0: the bad person, right? In True Lies, yeah.
1: But then like, but then kind of like you know the rest of the '90s, you didn't really see her too much. And um, I, I listened to a recent interview; she was on the podcast. I listened to. And she was saying how she took what she could get, you know, and, and she definitely felt like Wayne's World catapulted her into like a couple of really big movies. Um, but she said that her most proud work is her recent role in uh, RuPaul's uh, AJ and the Queen, which I haven't seen yet, but she said she's she's loving that, you know, she's able to play like a different character, like an offbeat character, and that that show's kind of taken off a little bit. And so she's been coming up lately in interviews and podcasts. So it's awesome to see that she's having like, sort of like a resurgence in her career.
0: That AJ and the Queen show has been in my Netflix queue for a second. I really do need to get to it. Tia Carrera has done a fair amount of TV. I think that's probably where I've seen her most and she's, I, I'm glad if anything that that Wayne's World catapulted her to extreme visibility because she is a very talented actor and uh, no matter what she does and no matter what she gets hired for um, yeah, she's always going to kill it and everything. You know who else owes a lot to Wayne's World? is Rob Lowe. Because this kind of came at a low point. Ha <laughs> ha in his career. After a little scandal you might have heard about in his life. So he hosted SNL and Lauren Michaels, it just kind of came to him that, you know, this guy's a solid actor. He's a hunk. He's very good at comedy and could pull his weight hosting SNL. And so he contacted Penelope Spirits and said, you know, who's going to be perfect for this jerk of a role who can pull off comedy and being a total dick? Rob Lowe.
1: Man, he is so perfect in this movie. And I'm most familiar with him now through Parks and Rec, which I love. I hadn't really thought about Wayne's World and made the connection even because it had been a while since I'd seen Wayne's World. And as soon as he came on the screen in Wayne's World, I was just like, oh God, this, yeah, this is like a segue into his character from Parks and Rec. This is like where that comedy bit started. Even some of his like cadence and his his pauses are, are very evident early on of his comedic timing
0: he'll even straight up say that he owes his career in comedy to lauren michaels and mike myers and he is really good at it too i mean he's a great actor in in a lot of ways uh but to pull off comedy didn't seem like it was something that came naturally to him or maybe just something that he didn't realize that he could do until until his turn on snl and wayne's world
1: and man, it, it weirds me out how he's not aging.
0: He's aging backwards.
1: He, he's really one of the lucky people on the planet who just appears to be getting more handsome as they get older.
0: He also seems like he really needs to dress and drag to me. He looks like he would make a very hot woman. I don't know. I, even, from Wayne's world to today, he is aging backwards. I don't know what it is. Roblo, please contact us. Let us know what your secret yeah. is.
1: Uh, We've also got one of our favorite character actors who's been in many, many movies that we've talked about here on the podcast, and that's uh, none other than Brian Doyle Murray.
0: You gotta love little Brian Murray. Whenever he pops up in anything, he's always going to be great, and not just in a movie with his brother. He's certainly been in his fair share, usually playing a dick sometimes, um, or just kind of sarcastic. I love that in Wayne's World, he's kind of dopey and clueless. He doesn't really play like the normal jerk that he does. Like there's a hint of that, but he's pretty, that's Rob Lowe's area in this movie. He's kind of clueless, but in a, you know, he's not stupid.
1: He's the butt of the jokes versus in other movies. He's kind of the, he's the bully, but they don't. Yes. And also him just doing the rap is like, the it's so cringy, <laughs> but like it cracks me up every time.
0: And Brian's been a longtime friend, of course, of Lauren Michaels and Saturday Night Live. He's Second City player, SNL cast member and writer. So obviously it seems more like with a Saturday Night Live movie, if you're going to write a part, you're probably going to go, you know, who could pull this off? Brian Doyle Murray. And he does expertly.
1: I think uh, someone who doesn't get all the credit they deserve for Wayne's world who he has like a really large amount of screen time is uh, uh, Kurt Fuller, you know, who we, we love in (laughs) Ghostbusters too, but he's actually the character who has like the biggest character arc in in all of the whole movie. (laughs) Yeah,
0: he does. He certainly does.
1: It, you know, he starts out being Rob Lowe's like secondhand man to like, you know, helping take over their Wayne and Garth, you know, their creative control and, 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 and an excruciatingly funny scene where uh, Garth dismantles his uh, flashlight as if it were like a gun.
0: <laughs> uh, it is like he just wipes away his brainwashing that Benjamin's put him it's, under.
1: It, it, it's, it's That's one of my favorites.
0: <laughs> it's a pretty darn funny scene. And a fun little crossover, too. Maybe you already know this, Justin, since you brought up Ghostbusters too. but both Kurt Fuller and Brian Doyle Murray were in Ghostbusters too.
1: Yeah, and it's funny that we brought up Clue earlier, considering Colleen Camp was in Clue and plays a, a really great but tiny role as Noah Vanderhoff's wife, the babe, the babe wife.
0: <laughs> yeah, that part where Michael DeLuise just says your wife's a total babe it's so, it's like a record scratch moment that could go really south. But because Brian is such a kind of just, oh, all right, thanks, you're right. And Colleen Camp's reaction is out of such shock, but she loves it. <laughs> just her reaction is amazing.
1: When him saying, uh do I scare you? And she's like, no. And he's like, do you want me to? <laughs> it's just so strange. And he's like holding the camera in front of him like.
0: Nope. That might be a moment that would turn me. If someone said that, I'd be like, oh, interesting. You're forthright. Okay. <laughs> um, also, Colleen Camp, we just talked about her in the previous episode, Election.
1: That's right. That's right.
0: Yeah, turned up in so many movies. Love Colleen Camp whenever she shows up in something. Also, uh, Ed O'Neill. Come on. Let's give a little slow clap for Ed O'Neill's scenes in this movie.
1: Ed O'Neill is, is sort of like the character that... Uh... <laughs> Is like very relatable and this sort of, you know, he's working <laughs> this, you know, it's like, uh, this yeah, is, this is Glenn. He, he works. The world on fire. <laughs> Wayne, you know, is just like, uh, knows that he's just like works there day and it's like, this is Glenn. He works here 24 7. I recommend the sugar
0: cakes. <laughs> yeah, everything about Ed O'Neill in this movie Just so I,
1: depressed and like,
0: <laughs> depressed, but just like grizzled. But still, like has an edge and is is he's not gonna he's not gonna ever move past where he is. But he's accepted it.
1: You know, there's a lot of comedians in this cast, but one really super funny performance by Laura Flynn Boyle, who really usually doesn't play uh, the comedic roles. You know, so this was kind of like a, a different uh, role for her.
0: Yeah, Stacy just never got the idea that Wayne broke up with her. She's just the not even crazy ex girlfriend. Just like she's she's not given up on Wayne. In every interaction with Stacy and Wayne, you're just waiting for whatever the silly thing that she's gonna do. And Wayne's like, "Are you mental? <laughs> like, what's wrong with you? I broke up with you like two months ago." Um, every time that Lara Flynn Boyle pops up in this movie, it's a like a guaranteed good laugh.
1: And I like that she plays like sort of the the crazy ex, like over the top. <laughs> Um, because she followed this movie up with uh, a movie that has a, a a very special place in my heart, The Temp. You know, I love my 90s oh, yeah. uh, my '90s thrillers of, of the crazy babysitter, the crazy temp, the crazy bus driver infiltrating somebody's life and ruining it.
0: Man, I forgot that she was in The Temp. That's right.
1: The Temp is, uh, is one of the crazier ones because she just starts straight up killing people, not even like manipulating <laughs> people's lives. She's just like right off the bat like, yeah, I'm just going to kill everybody this guy knows. <laughs>
0: Lyra Flynn Boyle is, I mean, she's a great actor in general, but her uh, comedic timing, I think, is is something that isn't really talked about too much. It's in, it's in happiness. She's a really, truly great performer. Yeah, absolutely.
1: And I'll give it up to uh, Robert Patrick for appearing in this movie for under 30 seconds, reprising his role from Terminator 2. I mean, he didn't have to do that, you know. It's in, in why would somebody want to really, you know, like I'm sure if he wasn't a fan of Wayne's world and like, what am I doing? You're going to have me do this like bit part.
0: And Robert Patrick had been around for a second, but certainly he knew, I mean, Terminator 2 is what got his face totally recognized. He was smart to do this in Wayne's World, but it
1: does make for a nice surprise because you're like, "Whoa, they really got the real guy!" <laughs> you know, so it 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 makes the joke work on multiple levels.
0: Yes, yes, and of course, how could we forget sweet little Chris Farley, who pops up in this for just a short amount, just a a little bit part, and he had already been in the cast of SNL, but Lauren Michaels called up Penelope Spiras and said. Look, we've got this guy. He's a great kid. Do um, you just have like a small role you can put him in? And that's how Chris Farley ended up in Wayne's World. So cute.
1: In a tiny role by Ione Sky as well, playing uh, Rob Lowe's girlfriend in the beginning who introduces him to Wayne's World. She's always been one of those actors where even if they're on screen for just, just a tiny moment, they just yeah. seem so real. She just has a way to admit that so easily even in such a tiny role where she's just talking about uh, the show and like oh this is hilarious you you've never seen these guys and it sucks you into the movie immediately and into you know Rob Lowe's idea of like oh, okay this is interesting this is different and great way great way to intro the movie
0: it was very smart to do that because you're you're right there's something about Ioni Sky that draws you right in and since that is the first thing that we see, we're set up with the movie with what we know that's familiar, and that is Wayne's basement. We know that from watching SNL, and then we immediately see this woman that we can't help but look at, and she's like, just her presence brings us in, and she thinks this show is cool. Of course, it's like immediately engaging, It just the film grabs you right at the very beginning. So slow clap for Ioni Sky on that one, too. One, one more um, engaging woman, how could we leave out uh, Dream Woman, played by Donna Dixon. I don't know if Donna Dixon was, at the time, if people would have been able to pick her out of a lineup. I mean, she was a model, and she's she's been Dan Aykroyd's wife for many, many a year, um, but I loved her in Spies Like Us. Think what you will of that movie, but Donna Dixon being the dream woman in Wayne's world, it makes sense to me because she kind of is a dream woman.
1: Yeah. And I will think what I will about Spies Like
0: Us. (laughs) I'm not going to comment.
1: Yeah. I won't either.
0: I own it. So that's all I'm going to say.
1: Well, no, and this being a music, a very music heavy movie, it only makes sense that they would have real life musicians in the movie. And I think used really well... Probably and I've said this like 10 times now in this episode, like the funniest scene or the funniest moment, which just now is making me realize how many freaking funny moments and scenes are in this movie. It's just almost nonstop. But we've got Meatloaf playing the doorman for the club that Wayne and Garth attend with the great line of uh, who's playing. You know, Wayne's asking who's on the bill tonight. He's like the shitty Beatles. Are they any good? And he's like, they suck. (laughs) then it's not just a clever name. And uh, of course, Alice Cooper appearing as himself where they get backstage, but some of the best humor comes uh, in the backstage hangout with Alice Cooper where Wayne and Garth are just so excited and they think, you know, this guy's the biggest partier on the planet and he's like this very soft-spoken, intelligent, like (laughs) calm, (laughs) demeanored while everyone's hanging out and they're talking about, you know, they just played a show in Milwaukee and they're talking about the origins of Milwaukee. And I just it, it makes for such a great scene and, and goes back to what you're saying earlier with Lauren Michaels idea of taking something that you think is going to happen. Like in your mind, you're like, oh, they're going to party all night with Alice Cooper. And that's the whole setup for this. And then it mm-hmm. just like goes in the complete opposite direction, but is even funnier than anything that you know could have happened if, if it was a big hotel party scene, which, you know, we've already seen a million times in movies.
0: Yeah, exactly. Well, of course, we have to talk about the music bringing up Meatloaf and Alice Cooper. This movie is so music heavy and music centered, pretty much responsible for the resurgence in popularity of Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen.
1: Yeah, and I'll, I'll admit this movie came out when I was 14 years old and I had never heard Bohemian Rhapsody or knew what that was, that it was a Queen song or anything till I saw Wayne's World. And immediately had to track down like what what is this song like you know like it had just came out. Of course, my mom's like, yeah, that song's was around when I was a teenager. Um, but it's it's interesting, you know, because it it brought that song to a whole new generation, like Stand By Me did with Benny King's title track and Roy Orbison's uh, Pretty Woman.
0: I also think that Monster did that with Journeys. Don't stop believing. No one listened to that song until Monster came out.
1: You really or- uh, you're re- you're really fighting for that theory.
0: I really am. Or The Sopranos. It was either one. It was around the same time. Whatever. (laughs) Yes, I will go to my grave fighting for that one. All right.
1: All right. And of course, you know, we've got like I talked about earlier, Foxy Lady, the Jimi Hendrix song um, played to perfection with uh, Garth and (laughs) all of the music that Cassandra Tia Carrera does, who, you know, she supplies her own vocals and, and those songs are fantastic and redundant to say, but like, of course, you know, if you, if you have a band playing in the movie, you want the music to be really good and catchy and, and something that's going to be interesting, that's going to draw the audience in. You know, we've talked about it with That Thing You Do and with Lady, Ladies and Gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains, but you hear Tia Carrera play and you're like, oh man, this band is awesome. And then later on when they do their live set for for Mr. Big when Wayne's trying to help her like make it big to get over the next hump of stardom it's just such a great song
0: my favorite musical moment in Wayne's world is is perfect for the moment for capturing the feeling for everything and comedy is both times that Dreamweaver's used in it um when when Wayne Sees Cassandra playing, and it's Cassandra's band playing, right? And she's rocking, and it's amazing. And Wayne's just basically seeing hearts in his eyes, and Dreamweaver starts playing. She starts with
1: drowning these... out her song.
0: <laughs> <laughs> with these, like, little starbursts happening around her. It's so perfect. And also a little Penelope Spheres crossover, which she said she originally did the music video for that song. I don't think it's the one that's used, but she was originally involved in that.
1: That's pretty wild.
0: It is. What a crossover. And of course, Dreamweaver, Gary Wright, that song always rules. And whether it's the music or the comedy or the performances, there's something in this movie that is for everyone. And it's certainly when the film was released, even test audiences freaked out over it and i don't think that anyone including lauren michaels mike myers anyone thought that the reception was going to be just as big as it was
1: yeah this was just a smash hit i mean not not a sleeper success like out of the gate smash hit teens adults alike people going to see this movie multiple times in the theater it garnering not only Um, Some critical acclaim and and tons of money at the box office, but also incorporating vernacular into pop culture with excellent and shuh, you know, and and just things that felt real to Wayne's universe and um, somehow worked in our in our universe as well.
0: Excuse me. I think you're totally right about that. Baking
1: powder. (laughs) Did you say five (laughs) thousand (laughs) dollars?
0: As if. And one thing that Penelope Speris brought up in talking about the success of this movie is that it should be said that it already had kind of a built-in audience. Like, people love Wayne's World on SNL. Uh, Like I said before, the skit had been running for over four years. So they were going to have teenagers going to see this movie, but then they were going to have their siblings, and then their parents are going to be curious, and then pretty much everyone's talking about this and saying catchphrases from the movie. You couldn't help but want to know what all the hype was about. And the movie looked innocent enough that it wasn't going to be something that was offensive.
1: Well, and certainly with the success of Wayne's World, uh, as with any movie, the immediate thought from a studio is, how fast can we get a sequel out? If you are a fan of Wayne's World, I'm certain you've probably seen Wayne's World 2. And I'm certain it could be argued, but there seems to be a great difference between the two movies as far as like humor and story and style. In substance, a lot of things. A lot of things are different, <laughs> I guess. And
0: so, pretty much, uh, like the whole movie is different, right?
1: But <laughs> Wayne's World Two was a it was a rushed project. You know, they were trying to get something out. They knew there was a limited amount of time. Like anything, anytime something like gets catapulted in the pop culture, it's gonna. You know, it, the movie is still good and and will hold up, but the trends of it being popular fades quickly. And so Mike Myers started work on a sequel with a whole different idea than what happened in Wayne's World. But he based it off of something that the studio didn't have the rights to. And they were pretty angry about that. And they said, you know, you need to get another story in the works that that we don't have to buy rights to and and get copyrights for or else we're going to cancel this whole thing. And so the Wayne's World 2 script was... Kind of cranked out pretty fast. There also was the lack of Penelope Spheris in the picture. She and Mike Myers didn't really gel too well in the first movie. They just Mike Myers, you know, has been known to be sort of a uh, I don't I don't I don't know if you would say the word micromanager, but he he's very like creative control and his way first, and then he'll take a few ideas, but um, they didn't they didn't really work too well. And so there's a claim from her that you know he. Would convince the studio to use a different director. And I think that really hurt Wayne's World 2. I think that she brought a lot of the style and coolness to the original Wayne's World. And I think a lot of that is lacking in Wayne's World 2. Now, me saying all this sounds like I hate Wayne's World 2, and that's not the case. Um, I love that Wayne's World 2 exists. Um, I love that there's another movie where I get to watch these characters coexist that's longer than a, you know, six or seven minute SNL sketch.
0: Sure. Yes. You're completely right. I love that Mike Myers was forced to do a rewrite on this, that Sherry Lansing basically said, I'm going to have you castrated if you don't fix <laughs> fix your idea that we don't own anyway, because the, I think the original idea had something to do with Wayne and Garth forming their own country that was off the coast or something of, of the U.S. Like, I don't know. It was just a little too fantastical and not to say, I mean, there's a lot of fantasy elements in Wayne's world, of course, but However, this idea came up of the point being Wayne and Garth putting on a festival. Yeah, that makes complete sense. That it exists based on a complete fantasy and a dream. You know, that's some willing suspension of disbelief, but that is the whole idea of Wayne's World in in a lot of ways. So I really enjoy Wayne's World 2. I like the first one better, but I'm certainly happy that the sequel exists the way it is.
1: And I do think Wayne's World 2 plays better now than it did when it came out, um, especially with the idea, you know, because everything in Wayne's World 2 is like built up toward the the Wayne stock music festival that they're putting on. And when the movie came out, there really wasn't a lot of, you know, there's a million music festivals now. But at the time Wayne's World 2 came out, that wasn't something that was so much, I think, in the mainstream. And so now the movie, make, you know, I think it plays a little bit better. You know, the, the reference is stronger because, you know, you're like, oh, yeah, naturally they're going to do a music festival. There's like a music festival in every city now that's like a major festival. I don't know. It plays a little more fun to me now. I think I'm just in the same way I am with Ghostbusters 2, I think I'm just more appreciative of these movies because it's like an extension of the original where I get to see these characters exist again.
0: Yeah. I can identify with that feeling. I'll never say anything negative about Ghostbusters 2. You know that though.
1: I know you won't. And I will never say anything negative about it in your presence.
0: (laughs) No, you can. We can totally have a dialogue about it.
1: (laughs) You say that now and then you don't text me for like three days. (laughs) Sorry. I missed your last four texts. I was watching Ghostbusters 2. You know, that movie that you fucking
0: hate. You are aware that like, um, Sigourney Weaver would never do a shitty movie, right? So I guess I don't know. like think about that. so whatever it's fine. Um, so I, bo- I think we both can say that we like Wayne's World too glad it exists. And I think as a, you know, as a bookend to the beginning of Wayne's World, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that it's out there. I really hope another Wayne's World doesn't happen. And kind of going into SNL movies, that makes me think a little bit how they did with Blues Brothers 2000. Like, Wayne's World was uh, the second SNL movie, the first being the Blues Brothers. And Blues Brothers 2000 came out, and, I mean, you really had to like the Blues Brothers in order to be down with Blues Brothers 2000. I mean, you, you, you were missing one of the brothers, you know, and and whatever. Think what you will about it. Again, I'm glad that it's out there. I'm not going to talk smack on it. I'm glad that it exists, but certainly um, SNL had a string of movies that I feel like, depending on your humor, I think all of them are funny in their own particular ways. Some are better than others, but I think you're going to find with each one of these, Somebody out there is going to say, oh, my God, It's Pat is like one of my favorite movies. But yet it's one of the ones that performed the worst out of all of the SNL movies. Same thing with like Stuart Smalley, Stuart Saves His Family. You can hate that character. And I know people that do. And I also know people that love that character.
1: I I really feel like Stuart Saves His Family needs to be reevaluated.
0: I'm all about it. We should just reevaluate both of those movies. I feel like It's Pat might be banned like in every country, probably, it's too offensive, I would imagine at this point.
1: I don't know that it's Pat's gonna play well to any audience right now.
0: I'm sorry. it's it's just Julia Sweeney's performance of Pat. I get I recognize why it's not okay, but it's just Julia Sweeney. Sorry. Pat's a funny character. Anyway, moving on, you can think what you want of all of these movies and certainly I'm gonna talk about one of those that being coneheads that came after uh, Wayne's World. But even, like, Night at the Roxbury did much better than some of these other movies at the box office. Again, some people love those characters. Other people hate them.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. I think it really comes down to your tolerance of the characters in the sketch. Like, Night at the Roxbury was not a sketch that really ever... When that one came on, it it never really spoke to me as much mm-hmm. as, like, the Molly Shannon, uh, Mary Catherine character. Superstar. You know, yeah, and, and, and to me, that movie, I think it works. It's funny... It, it doesn't wear out its welcome, you know, and I, I think that there was enough material of that character was like quirky enough to like expand her, her world. Um, same thing with Ladies Man. I, I'll say I saw Ladies Man not knowing that that was an SNL sketch and I thought the movie was hilarious.
0: Yeah, I think that's one that deserves another look too. You know, I want to know when Stefan is going to get his own movie. Is that going to
1: happen? It's, it's shocking that they never did a <laughs> Stefan movie. Probably Bill Hader was just like, "Yeah, I don't want to do a whole." Yeah,
0: we know, um, we know how we know how *Magruber* went down. We can't do it.
1: And uh, you know, *Magruber* the only SNL movie that I haven't seen other than *Coneheads*. Um, but I don't you know, know that sketch to be honest. There's, you know, I, I've, I've got some gaps in my SNL uh, lineage watching.
0: *Magruber* was never one of my favorite recurring sketches however anything that Kristen Wiig does she's she's gonna shine a piece of shit into gold you know what I yeah. mean like she's um but I think you can have someone that's gonna make something wonderful but then all of the pieces aren't gonna be there to make it to make it what it is but for the most part I'm really glad that SNL even tried to do something like this uh, with these string of movies I don't know I'm interested to see if they will put out another one. It's been 10 years since MacGruber.
1: I would say if there was any sketch that they could pull out for a feature that I'd be the most down with, it would be Whiskers or (laughs) Wee.
0: Oh, my God. The Whiskers or Wee, ladies. Yeah, that'd be pretty good.
1: I think you could do a lot with that. I think there's a lot of, you know. That's
0: the thing is you have to think about the characters and what you can do with them. And some are going to be one trick ponies like the I love the alien abduction lady that Kate McKinnon does. Do I think that there's a whole movie in that? No, not at all. But there's there's got to be something in here where, if anything, what if you were to have a movie with with the Whiskers Are We ladies and, you know, work other SNL cast members in? I mean, we're just spitballing here. Lauren, you, you if you're listening, you know. Give us a call. We'll give you some ideas. We'll forward you know. our
1: notes from the show.
0: I'm sure Lauren's been taking notes the entire yeah. podcast.
1: But really, I think you know, looking back at all the SNL movies that have come out, I think that they've gotten a, a, a kind of a bad rap. You know, I yeah, think I think, I, agree. It, I think you could go back and, and revisit any number of these movies, and and they're not going to be they're going to be better than a lot of really bad comedy movies that came out in the 90s. There's some positive things about each and every one of these. Maybe I can't say that about Blues Brothers 2000, but <laughs> I digress. There was
0: there was just love. The guys involved in that had yeah, yeah. love. So I can It feels more
1: of a tribute movie than it does uh yes. than it does a, a SNL movie.
0: Yes, exactly. I do. I totally agree with that. But all
1: this talk about SNL movies, it's really got me, uh, uh, you know, itching the see Coneheads, you know, so I can finally close that one out. As far as my SNL '90s movies that I that I haven't seen,
0: if there's one, I can't wait to talk about it in the picks of the week. Well, I think now is a perfect time to
1: do that. Let's uh, let's stop with Wayne's World. Let's let's hear about the Coneheads.
0: I stand behind every pick of the week I've ever done, and it really hasn't been until this one that I've gotten some scoffs at this consideration. Like I said before, it's been over 15 years since I've seen it, and I'm going to make a solid statement that Coneheads was, and even more so nowadays, one of the most underrated comedies of the 90s. If you're not already aware, actor, writer, producer, and original not-ready-for-primetime player Dan Aykroyd conjured up the recurring Coneheads characters for SNL. The original Coneheads, Aykroyd, Jane Curtin, and Lorraine Newman lasted from 77 to 79, excluding later appearances. And they were a ratings guarantee, kind of like Wayne's World. The Coneheads' humor was accessible and fairly innocent for any audience, from highbrow to the stoner crowd where the SNL sketches had us witnessing the Coneheads interacting with humans in various situations at home, this 1993 film finds the family in much more of a straightforward narrative. Primat and Beldar Conehead, played by Curtin and Aykroyd, are sent on a scouting mission to Earth and are shot down by the military. When they're informed that no one from their planet Remulac will be able to rescue them in seven Zerols, which is presumably a very, very long time, the Coneheads must assimilate to American life by way of maintaining an income, buying a house, having a kid, having friends, and because they are technically, you know, quote, illegal aliens, the family must hide from the human authority figures. Just straight off the bat, looking at this movie almost 30 years later, pre-9-11, pre-Trump's border wall to Mexico, the Coneheads feels strangely prophetic. I know, kind of weird, right? And I don't just mean the electric shock collars that are presented as government border security, either. It's overt without being preachy, but does something really crafty. No matter what your political beliefs, the way in which the Coneheads family is persecuted or judged comes only from the obviously ignorant folks or law enforcement. Everyone else in their lives, neighbors, friends, any stranger they meet at the supermarket, they accept their pointy-headed, shaped community members' differences with very few questions. We come from France is the excuse given uh, for their un-American appearance and behaviors. The Coneheads, who are now with a teenager, Connie, want nothing more than to achieve contentment and stability, earn an honest living, and follow the idealized notion of the typical American dream. They're called illegal aliens by law enforcement when they're just straight-up aliens from another planet. Since we see their forwardness and honesty and their living style, it's nearly impossible to feel anything but love for this family, especially when they have law enforcement breathing down their necks again after a few years of blending in. I can't help but feel love for this movie, whether because of their needless, unwanted persecution or the heart of the film— best articulated during the montage of Connie Conehead's childhood over the song Kodachrome by Paul Simon, also another longtime friend of SNL. Aykroyd and Curtin are at the tip-top of their game as Beldar and Primat. Certainly no one else could have had their commitment to making these characters so believable and lovable. And though Lorraine Newman had to be recast as their daughter Connie due to, you know, her looking like an adult more than a teenager, Michelle Burke gives a very sweet perfect all-American interpretation of the character, though Newman does later make an appearance as the family's aunt. And she's not the only comedian to pop up in this movie. Co-starring roles go to Chris Farley, David Spade, Michael McKean, Dave Thomas, and a whole litany of other comedians: Adam Sandler, Phil Hartman, Sinbad, Jan Hooks. I mean, I have a list here, but I'm—I mean, Ellen DeGeneres is in it with one line. It's just seriously like, if you were a comedian or on SNL at the time, why weren't you in this movie? Is how it feels. And while I now see the message under the movie as being about acceptance and how everyone wants pretty much the same things in life, the humor from the original SNL sketches is very present, just further developed. Though Connie has all-American girl sensibilities, Beldar and Primat still maintain their bizarre diet of carb-protein intake, and their quick and robotic walk, constant wide-eyedness, a really weird, strange laugh, their dialect cadence of speech and hilariously literal interpretation and observation of human culture, food, rephrasing of commonly used human phrases, just really anything. They're incredibly forward while being inoffensively intrusive. What's honestly kind of lacking in most of us blunt skulls, as they call humans. Like I said... Unless you're a jerk, this movie paints most humans as accepting, even if they don't understand. Remember when tolerance was the catchphrase of the day? That's what Coneheads is positively trying to demonstrate. Whether you can hang with this departure from reality attempting to fit into a believable universe is up to you, but it's a pretty dang enjoyable movie. In the end, The Coneheads is about love, commitment, community, and acceptance over intolerance. Like I said in the beginning, I watched this movie three times over the course of two weeks and was charmed every time. If you were ever one of those eye rollers at this movie, when's the last time you tried watching it? Like 93, 94? Try it again. It's innocent, surprisingly intelligent humor, and has this bizarre style of comedy from an era of SNL that'll never be achieved again. And I truly got to give it up to Dan Aykroyd and Jane Curtin for this one. Like If it weren't for them, I I can't imagine it without them.
1: Yeah, it's still crazy to me that I've not seen this movie yet. I might watch that tonight. I might I might just stay up a little bit later and and watch it after this episode.
0: The other thing about it is the humor is so quick. It's it's very I don't know if it's just the way that Beldar and Primat talk that it's very quick, but the cuts are very quick, but it doesn't feel rushed at all. It just feels like a very quickly paced movie, which I think you need for something like this.
1: Who is the uh, who's the director on Coneheads?
0: Uh, Steve Barron, you remember him from when he did Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles?
1: Oh yes, I do. Yeah, he directed this one. All right, well that makes me even more excited.
0: Right? Yeah, you like that movie?
1: I do better than Spies Like Us.
0: <laughs> oh man, I've watched it recently. Yeah, it's just got a nostalgic charm for the first me. First five all... minutes are great. Yeah, when they're when they're just meeting each other and cheating on the test. Wonderful. At the camp, wonderful.
1: Yeah.
0: Past that, it's questionable. Donna Dixon, great.
1: Yeah.
0: Doctor, I'll
1: agree with all that.
0: Doctor, 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 doctor. You only know that if you know that movie. Justin, please, I really, really need to hear about your pick of the week. Please remind me of the gloriousness that is Airheads.
1: I'll do just that. So I picked Airheads because I felt. Again, like it was, uh, had a little bit to do with uh, music and and had cast member from SNL. Uh, it's a it's a really fun movie. It's directed by Michael Lehman, who did one of our past episodes uh, that we talked about with Heather's. And this movie is much much lighter than Heather's. It's almost as if you you wouldn't have known he was the director because it it doesn't have a lot of the dark humor that heather's had but it is a lot of fun it is a very entertaining movie it's about three hapless musicians heavy metal heads played by adam sandler steve buscemi and brendan frazier they're really down on their luck their their girlfriends are leaving them they're not getting very far in their jobs and they're, they're low on rent, and they're really bummed because they can't break through into the music industry. They get a bonkers idea to hold up a radio station and force the DJ to play their demo tape in hopes that maybe it'll spark some sort of record deal. And what starts out as sort of a goofy plan... Uh, leads to them barging in. They have uh, water guns that they've put pepper juice in. No one knows that these guns are fake. And eventually it causes a media sensation because there's cops out front, there's protesters. It's being broadcast on the news 24-7. But they don't really have a really good plan. They're Like the title suggests, they're a bunch of airheads. And so they're trying to figure out what they're going to do. The majority of the movie takes place in the radio station and there's there's some good laughs there there's there's a lot of fun. It's a short movie, but the the big win here in this movie is Adam Sandler. This was a movie that he made before he hit it big with Billy Madison and Happy Gilmore, and he pretty much steals every scene of these in. The majority of the movie, there is some satire mixed in uh, in the same kind of way that Wayne's World did, you know, the music industry and kind of how uh, radio stations are forced to play particular kinds of music, how DJs are kind of burnt out. And the last 20 minutes of the movie, it gets a little bit rocky because it's kind of unsure of, like, what they're going for. Are they going for satire? Or are they going for, like sort of the happy Hollywood ending and that's what they go for a happy Hollywood ending, but it is very satisfying. This is one of those movies that I I think is like the pinnacle of like, you're sitting down on a, on a Saturday night and you just want something to crack open a beer and have fun and watch a movie to, to get a few laughs and, and be entertained. I love a good popcorn flick. I love very intelligent movies. I love thrillers. I love horror movies, but I also really love this kind of movie. Um, it's not as smart as Wayne's World and certainly not as funny, but I think that it's in that same vein. And if you're looking for a good time, um, I recommend Airheads.
0: I do really enjoy Airheads. It's been a second since I've seen it, but for some reason it was a movie I watched a lot in in the 90s, like one that I had taped off HBO or something like that. They look like a legit band. I've always thought that.
1: <laughs> they do look like a legit band. Uh, the The wigs and stuff aren't as obnoxious as the as you would think they would be and there there's some sincerity i think in their performances it's not a straightforward like goofball comedy
0: it is really worthwhile
1: so those are our picks of the week airheads and coneheads very heady selection um (laughs) check those out if you want a few laughs but let's keep it moving here's your murray moment Because I rarely wear underwear, and when I do, it's usually something unusual. I think I need a root canal. I'm sure I need a long, slow root canal.
0: You're gonna come and
1: shake my monkey tree again? Oh, what does that old queen know? She didn't even show.
0: Okay, this is so structure Is this hand-shot? The flowing robes, the grace of all. Striking. I tell you, sometimes I start these Murray moments in one spot and end up so far from the beginning like a Simpsons episode, I even surprise myself. So please, ride this wave that is my mind. SNL's created some legendary duos over its 45 years of existence. As much as I love Wayne and Garth, my wholehearted favorite duo is Billy and the beloved Gilda Radner as Todd and Lisa, otherwise known as the Nerds. Wayne's World may have been in a whopping 19 episodes, but Todd and Lisa turned in 13 sketches in fewer seasons. And you may not think that there's much of a crossover here, but I promise I'll bring us back to Wayne's World. If you're not familiar with the nerd sketches, Todd Labonta and Lisa Lupner were a lovable little nerdy couple enjoying each other's company, having fun, and occasionally being a little risque. I played a nerd, Billy said in the book Life from New York by James Andrew Miller and Tom Shales. Gilda played a nerd and I was going after her personally, whatever it was, I made her laugh. Even nerds had stupid humor. Billy and Gilda were a legendarily on and off secret, not so secret couple in real life. Whether they were on or off during that week of rehearsals, as a viewer, you saw the magic that would happen between the two. Todd and Lisa became a medium for Gilda and Billy to work something through on television, said Rosie Schuster, a writer on SNL who did all of the Todd and Lisa sketches. He could probably track what was going on by seeing how they related to each other on the air. And in the same Life from New York book, which is a Bible to me, Billy talks about the magic that was created in those nerd sketches and how it served Gilda perfectly because, as Lisa Lupner, she could get away with laughing inside her character. She was a fantastic laugher, Billy said. I never enjoyed making anyone laugh more than her. Never. Over the years, he's mentioned this a few times. And you could think that a newer SNL generation might not have ever known Gilda professionally, but when Mike Myers was 10, he became enthralled with Gilda on the set of a four-day shoot of a Canadian commercial they did together. I thought she was awesome, funny, cool, and beautiful. I cried on the last day of the commercial because I had fallen so in love with her, Mike said of the experience. A fact which he was ruthlessly teased about by his brothers, especially after they saw Gilda on some no-name show at the time called Saturday Night Live. Mike was captivated by her on screen, and in seeing her on TV, turned to the rest of the people in the room and said, someday I'll be on this show. And everyone just laughed at him because, you know, that thought's pretty ludicrous. Obviously, that came true. In January-February of 89, Mike Myers joined the cast of Saturday Night Live, and it was in May of the same year when Gilda broke the hearts of so many. Personally, me, Lindsay, I remember exactly where I was when I found out Gilda passed away, and as a fan, how it made me feel, and I didn't even know her. Ovarian cancer's a real bitch. My blood ran cold, Mike said of the Saturday he heard about Gilda the day he was due to go live later that night. And that evening, SNL was hosted by a longtime friend of the show, Steve Martin. And in the opening monologue, and I ask you to look up this video, you can see the pain that Steve's holding back as he pays tribute to Gilda with a sketch they did in 78 called Dancing in the Dark. If you know it, you know it. It's only dancing, no words, and it's glorious comedy. I know I took us down a dark path you probably weren't expecting, but here's where I steer us back around. To something Todd and Lisa related. To Wayne's world to that same episode in 1978 with Steve and Gilda dancing. Now, Todd and Lisa had their fair share of catchphrases, from noogies to band-aids for mosquito bites to something being so funny I forgot to laugh. Todd and Lisa popularized some seriously memorable vernacular. Obviously, the same can be said for Wayne's World. But guess what? From what I can surmise, the first recorded sarcastic usage of the phrase not was not from Wayne's World. It was from a Todd and Lisa sketch from this very same episode in 78, which Steve Martin hosted, did the Dancing in the Dark with Gilda, and where he was the recurring arch nemesis of Billy's Todd Lebounta, where he was always trying to steal away Lisa Loopner's affection. I know this is so minor, and maybe only a few other people have caught this over the years, but when I was going back and watching all the Todd and Lisa sketches, this moment stood out to me as a, hey... Wait a second, when exactly did that phrase come around? If anyone out there wants to um, actually me on this, go ahead. I'm sure you'll find the same bare bones research I did. So I'm pretty secure in just always enjoying just thinking about not coming from a Todd and Lisa sketch way before Wayne's World. See, I brought it back around. You look hard enough, you can find all the connections between people throughout the years on Saturday Night Live. This avenue of Billy Murray and Mike Myers' appreciation for funny woman and heartbreaker Gilda Radner was how I chose to do this one. Ask me another day, and maybe I'll give you another Murray moment. But this this one just ended up being more fun.
1: Um, actually, I think uh, <laughs> I like that little factoid.
0: Yeah, it was uh, it was pretty funny, and I thought that I was really reaching when I when I heard that, and then I was like, Meh, whatever, I'm this is what I'm doing right now. I'm researching. And there's, I I found like three other people that <laughs> that noticed this. um. But at least I'm not alone.
1: I totally thought it was from Wayne's World.
0: And you know what, maybe it maybe it is, but it's, it, it came before Wayne's World, whether it was Todd and Lisa that originated it. It was certainly the first thing where I can see it uh, used in comedy, especially on television. And is it a coincidence that it's both Saturday Night Live? I don't know. I kind of think not.
1: I uh, I like that. Thanks for that Murray moment. Of course. Do we have any? Uh, did you have any final thoughts before we wrap things up on Wayne's World? I had one or two minor little things.
0: Yeah, I yeah, mine, mine are pretty minor. I mean, I can, do you want me to go ahead because I'm the woman, or do you want to go ahead with this? You I, know? I mean, I wasn't
1: even going to suggest that, but, I mean, go ahead, go for it.
0: Uh... Madam. <laughs> I really only had, um, like, two little things to bring up, which are the same idea, and that was two scenes in which Mike Myers was not a fan. Evidently, he was not a fan of the Robert Patrick cameo from Terminator 2 where he comes up to the side of the car in character from Terminator 2 and is like have you seen this boy which is hilarious i don't know why he wasn't into it it seemed like it was either it was going to be over the heads of people many years later or it just felt completely out of left field i really liked it but i think the one that i just don't agree with him on and is one of my it's probably in the top 3 of favorite moments in all of Wayne's world for me is when Lara Flynn Boyle is riding by on her bike and she's got like the neck brace on and Wayne and Garth are playing street hockey and she's like, hi, Wayne, hi. And she flips over the car and like just face plants on top of the car. It's one of the funniest moments in the entire movie and he did not like it, did not want it in there. So bizarre. If anybody ever wants to brighten my day, just go ahead and send me that video and it'll... Guarantee will we'll perk up my day.
1: I had uh, just two little short things. Uh, one, it was a more personal note, was that, uh, you know, when we were talking about how this movie kind of like entered into pop culture. And I remember when this movie came out, just being so excited. Uh, I think I went and saw it two or three times in the theater. And one of the times I saw it, uh, I saw it at the mall. And then when I was in the mall, they had a Suncoast video there, which I wish still existed. Um, maybe there's one or two around somewhere, but they certainly don't exist in St. Louis anymore. But in a Suncoast video, I was able to buy a Wayne's World hat as well as the Monster Squad on VHS. It was an exciting day at the mall.
0: Oh my God. The same time. Whoa. That's awesome. Pretty
1: wild. And then, uh, my second thing was, is that, uh, doing the research for Wayne's World, there was multiple mentions in several different interviews, about how Mike Myers and Dana Carvey were real frustrated whenever Penelope Spheres wanted them to do the headbanging for Bohemian Rhapsody at the very end of the song, which makes for a great scene. But they said that, you know, it was like hurting their necks. And, they, you know, they just, I thought being like pretty dramatic about the whole thing. Cause they were <laughs> in every interview, they're like, oh yeah, for like the next three days, you know, I, my neck still hurts from it to this day. And yeah. I was just like, gosh. These guys are, like, pretty wimpy about this whole thing. So then uh, I tried doing just, like, rocking my head back and forth like I was headbanging. And, and headbanging, it's kind of like, you know, if you're if you're standing and you're, like, putting your head down, but they're, in the movie, they're, like, sitting upright and kind of, like, banging their heads. And, yeah, I did that for, like, three or four minutes, and I was just thinking, like, yeah, there's no way I could do this, like, <laughs> for, like, an entire day if we, if we were Multiple shooting takes. a scene. So, so um So, yeah, I I take back all those uh, sort of like odious thoughts I had about Mike Myers and Dana Carvey.
0: And in the movie, yeah, you could look at that and be like, what? It was like 10 seconds long, but 10 seconds means an entire day they were doing that. So, yeah, I'm sure they still got a lawsuit or three pending on that. But I do love these little factoids, little behind the scenes moments that we learned about this movie. I really enjoyed revisiting Wayne's World. It's certainly a movie that has not, um, even with all the cultural references, whether it's directly related to a movie or just of the time, uh, it, somehow it, it hasn't aged, you know, and in the ways that it has, it doesn't really matter. I think you can still find the humor in it.
1: I like that, you know, we've done like a month of comedies. We love our themes here at, at the podcast and we've got uh, something really, we're cooking up something nice for December. I mean, it's
0: ending out the year. We got to do a big thing, right?
1: And we thought, what better thing to do than celebrate a national treasure? And that's Miss Dolly Parton.
0: Dolly December coming at ya.
1: We're going to start off Dolly December with Steel Magnolias.
0: Such a great movie. Um, tug at your heart, make you laugh while you're crying at the same time. Yep. Can't wait to talk about this one.
1: A lot to get into with that. Something to look forward to December. I want to thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed our episode on Wayne's world. If you'd like to uh, stay tuned, stay in touch, know what's going on with the podcast. You can find us on all your uh, normal social media outlets, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or our YouTube. Actually, you can find many of our old, old episodes. If you missed out on anything, uh, we also do have an archive of all our episodes dating back to episode zero at our website at don't push pause There, you can also find our merch store where all the money that we make on merch go, goes toward helping us make a bigger and better podcast for our listeners' ears. So, please do buy something from us. We totally appreciate it. Uh, if you'd like to contact us, uh, just tell us how you're doing. Tell us what movies you're watching. Let us know if you liked an episode and why. You can reach us at don't push pause podcast at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm Justin Johnson.
0: And I'm Lindsay Reber.
1: Thanks so much for listening.
0: Party on, guys.
1: Party on.